and welcome to the podcast, Buffy and the Art of Story, Season 4. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. Today we are breaking down Season 4, Episode 15, This Year's Girl, Where Faith Wakes Up from Her Coma. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. As to this year's girl, we'll talk about how this is a fast-moving, complete story that is also part one of a two-part episode. The way this episode tells the story and builds character through setting and objects, powerful scenes and moments that work better because we don't see them. A return to something Buffy normally does so well but has faltered a bit on in this season, which is to convey exposition without slowing the pace at all by using strong conflict and other techniques. And finally, protagonist and antagonist questions that run throughout the episode but don't undercut it in any way. As always, there will be no spoilers until the end of the episode so that I can talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. This year's Girl originally aired on February 22, 2000. It was directed by Michael Gershman and written by Doug Petrie. This discussion will include highlights from the commentary Doug Petrie did for the DVD edition. We start with some opening conflict there to draw the reader or viewer in. Buffy and Faith are putting clean sheets on Buffy's bed, but when Buffy comments that they smell like summer... Faith says she wouldn't know, and Buffy apologizes, saying she forgot, and Faith responds, I noticed. Buffy tells Faith she needs to go soon and says it's just with, and Faith finishes Buffy's sentence saying, little sis coming. Blood drops onto the clean sheets. The music turns discordant and Faith looks distressed and says, you ever going to take this thing out? Buffy's hand is holding that two-handled knife that she stabbed Faith with in real life. And at one minute, two seconds in, the camera cuts to their faces as Buffy jams the knife in further. The scene shifts to monitors and then pans back as lightning flashes and we see Faith in bed with a metal headboard in a very grim looking hospital room and we cut to credits. This dream sequence does so much. It catches us up on our Faith and Buffy history, but it has its own conflict. This idea that there's a harmonious relationship between the two slayers, but that Buffy forgot about Faith. And then there is that shift to Buffy twisting the knife. One of the things Doug Petrie commented on was that he loved this partly because it is the first dream from Faith's perspective, and as we'll see, all she dreams about is Buffy. As we'll find out, this is part of Faith's process of waking up and understanding what happened to her and where the world is right now. We return post-credits, and the scene is set in Xander's basement. He is trying to get a blaster to work. Willow offers the not-too-helpful suggestion to just press some buttons and see what happens. Giles folds laundry in the background, letting viewers know that the Scooby gang is still staying there in the basement. Buffy is frustrated and tired. She snaps at Xander, sits on the bed, and puts her head in her hand for a second. Giles suggests she get some sleep. She's been patrolling three days straight around the clock. She tells him she can't rest and goes on. There's a demonoid killing machine out there, Giles. It doesn't only work the night shift. Giles, though, was going to suggest some backup. 
Buffy just wants the blaster, and Willow asks if she's sure. And referring to Adam, Buffy says, he's the Terminator without the bashful charm. He's deadly, and the last time we met, he kicked my ass. But Willow meant that what about Riley as backup? Has Buffy heard anything? And Buffy says all the initiative will tell her is that Riley is fine. In the background, Xander is getting shocked by the blaster, but no one notices. Giles and Willow try to reassure Buffy Riley's the top guy for the initiative. They won't want to hurt him. But Buffy's more worried about the brainwashy behavior modification guys and says, so what happens when they start not liking his behavior? Now we are reaching 10% through the episode. Usually here we'll see the story spark or inciting incident that gets the main plot rolling. Because this is a two-part episode, I don't think we see that inciting incident for the two-parter until later. But here what we get instead is a story spark for a very strong subplot, which is Buffy wanting to help Riley even as she strives to stop Adam because we cut at four minutes 28 seconds into Riley in the hospital he puts on his shirt over his bandaged midsection but when he tries to leave the room a soldier blocks his way Riley tells the soldier to stand down but he doesn't do that until Forrest appears and also says to stand down Forrest follows Riley down the hall, calling him the shish kebab that walks like a man. The two of them clash about Riley's plan to go see Buffy. Their friend Graham appears, tries to bring down the tension, but Forrest and Riley also spar over who is in command now. Forrest says they have a problem, meaning Adam, and they need to band together. Graham thinks that Forrest has a point, but Forrest goes on to say the most important thing is to keep the problem within the the family, which sets off Riley, who says, family, is that what we are? Step aside. We cut to Faith. She is in the hospital bed, and I like this transition. It's fairly subtle. This idea of family, is that what we are? And that Faith and Buffy can be seen as family, or as Doug Petrie later says, as siblings. The scene cuts between Faith in her bed and a grave at night. It's still storming. Then we shift to a different dream of Faith's. She is having a picnic on a sunny day with the mayor. They're on a checkered tablecloth. They have a picnic basket. But she's worried and says it seems like it always starts to rain right around now, suggesting to me that Faith may be having a repeating dream about this. The mayor tells her she's too young and pretty to start wearing worry lines on her face. A garter snake crawls onto the tablecloth and the mayor laughs and picks up this little harmless snake and tells it it doesn't belong there. He sets it aside, but Faith looks worried again. This is a nice callback to graduation and the mayor turning into a giant snake. Even though Faith didn't see that happen, I imagine that like Buffy, she may have dreams that hint at things that she couldn't otherwise know. The mayor reassures Faith that Nothing will spoil their time together, asks who wants cheesecake, which makes me think of Ted, the robot boyfriend, who was always asking people if they wanted food. The mayor turns aside to get the cheesecake and Faith yells no. At 6 minutes 59 seconds, Buffy appears and stabs the mayor with that same knife that was Faith's, but that Buffy used to stab and almost kill Faith. And Buffy says, I told you I had things to do. Do. She stalks Faith, who tries to scramble away on her hands and knees. Buffy really reminds me of the Terminator here, and I think that can't be a mistake given her earlier reference to the Terminator. She moves very deliberately, almost robotically, throughout the rest of Faith's dream sequences. We cut at 7 minutes 20 seconds to Buffy, Willow, and Xander patrolling the woods. They come across a hanging skin and dissected demon. Then we switch to the three of them in Xander's basement, deciding that Adam must be studying human and demon anatomy and learning how it works. I wonder if this is all part of Adam's long-term plan 
or if for right now it is more about his question in the last episode that he knows what he is but not who he is. He maybe thinks that dissecting human and demons will help give him a clue about that. Buffy tells her friends the initiative created Adam but it can't stop him. Only she and her friends can do that and Xander responds, question, will hiding in a cabin with a stockpile of chocolate goods be any part of this plan? Buffy says, no. Xander sits down next to Willow on the couch and says, told you. Buffy tells them the first step is to get Riley. She goes into how they'll infiltrate the initiative. Willow needs to get into their mainframe. Xander needs to bring her any military gear he has, and she'll go in through the elevator shaft and blast open the doors. We're nearing 25% through the episode. That's where we typically see the first major plot turn. It should come from outside the protagonist and spin the story in a new direction and it often raises the stakes. Here at 25%, Riley has come down the stairs behind Buffy, and despite her slayer senses, she doesn't notice this, and Riley says, I'm really worth all that, referring to all Buffy's plans to break in. Buffy hugs him, thrilled, which hurts his side, and she apologizes. Riley says, no, giant skewers in my ribcage hurt me. That was just a reminder. Xander worries that the initiative put a chip in Riley's brain, but Riley tells them he walked out after threatening a major incident. Doug Petrie commented that the last time we saw Riley, he couldn't get out of the initiative. Forrest was blocking his way, and now here he is. So we basically just fast-forwarded past how Riley got out, and he explains it by just saying he threatened to kick their asses rather than showing the whole scene. Usually the advice to writers is show don't tell, that it's stronger to show something and that particularly applies to emotion and that's not what we're talking about here but all the same you would think the default would be hey this would be a great action scene. However, I like the way this is handled because Riley getting out of the initiative isn't the key part of this story. It's not a key part of the Faith Buffy plot, and it's not that key to the Buffy-Riley subplot, which is really about Riley figuring out his place, Buffy trying to help him with that. So we don't need to see that fight scene. This isn't primarily a Riley versus the initiative story. So it's a good way to keep the pace going, but yet let the viewer know how is it that Riley got away. Riley says taking down Adam will be tough. Buffy responds, you're here. Whatever comes, we can handle. At 10 minutes, 28 seconds, we cut to the night. Faith is running from Buffy through a graveyard, so we're back in her dreams, and that's intermixed with Faith in bed, her eyes fluttering. Buffy is relentless, robotic. Faith stumbles into an open grave and Buffy jumps in after her, but she does it in this very un-Buffy-like way, essentially just steps forward, keeps her arms at her side, and just goes straight down, feet first. Doug Petrie commented on how he loved the effortless way Buffy jumps down into the grave. Then the rain pours down and we hear Faith and Buffy fighting, but we don't see them. We only see the top of the grave and then a hand. It's Faith clawing her way out and she stands up to this dark triumphant music staring up at the sky and there's rain and lightning and Petrie commented on how that fight is stronger because we only hear it so another example of leaving it to the viewers imagination of this slayer versus slayer in the grave in the dark in the rain fight becomes stronger than if we tried to film an actual fight sequence at 11 minutes, 46 seconds in, Faith's eyes, she's lying in bed, snap open, and we cut to a commercial. Though this is past the 10% mark of the double episode, I do see this as the inciting incident of the main plot, which is Faith versus Buffy, Faith waking up in this new world, new to her. It is a little late 
but I feel like it works because there is so much else going on that's significant and because in some ways the entire dream sequence is what sets off this story telling us that Faith is about to wake up. So we have a lot of tension there, though the actual opening of her eyes comes beyond 10%. And Doug Petrie commented that as to this episode, Faith waking up is the end of Act 1. Petrie also commented that he loves Faith's dreams, which are kind of beautiful. The making of the bed in Buffy's room, her picnic with the mayor, and how Faith really wants to be this girl and have a dad. And in her mind, she had it. In that dream, she is taken care of, she's loved, and the only thing that screws it up is Buffy. In her mind, Buffy is the villain. When we return, Faith takes out her IV heads into a dark hallway barefoot and in her hospital gown. A girl about Faith's height in a bright red cardigan sweater and carrying a teddy bear comes in through the doors at the end of the hall and asks a question about how to get to another ward. Doug Petrie commented on this basement that nothing is clean, nothing is well lit, and Faith is in hell. So that's one of those examples of storytelling through the setting because realistically you don't keep your coma patients in the basement in the dark where everything looks dirty but it tells us about where faith is emotionally the girl sees faith's confusion as she gets closer and asks does she need some help Faith says she has to get to Sunnydale High graduation, and then we get some more great exposition through conflict, and this conflict also shows us Faith's intensity. Faith says, graduation, and the girl says, what? And Faith answers, graduation, I gotta get to Sunnydale High School graduation now. And the girl responds, well, you can't. I mean, Sunnydale High School isn't even there anymore. So it starts to dawn on Faith, and she says, what day is it? The girl says, Friday, and Faith says, what date? The date. The girl says, February 25th, and Faith responds, what year? The girl says, maybe I should get you a nurse. And Faith says, what happened to the school? The girl responds, don't you want to? And Faith says, just tell me. Petrie commented that when they were breaking the story, they initially thought that as soon as Faith woke up, there would be this huge fight scene. They had a lot of talk about, well, how strong would a slayer be after being in the coma? Because most people wouldn't be able to move around on their own power at all, but she is a slayer. And in the end, they did this scene instead where Faith becomes a threat during this scene rather than being a threat right away. He also commented on how the high school blowing up means such a different thing to Faith than it did to the rest of our core characters. To her, it means her plan failed and her father figure is dead. The girl tells Faith it was a tragedy. Lots of students died and we get a close-up on Faith's face when the girl says that the mayor died. And again, the girl really thinks she ought to get Faith some help. And we cut to Faith walking out of the hospital in the girl's clothes, including that bright red sweater, so that we can't miss it. Which is a great use of clothing because it is so unfaith-like to be wearing both that color and this kind of bulky cardigan sweater. Also that the girl who was probably high school age was carrying a teddy bear adds to that feeling of violence. We don't know exactly what Faith did to this girl because we didn't see it, but we know it was not good. And this is another example of not seeing what happened and allowing us to fill it in. And probably I imagine something much worse. I think I imagine she killed the girl and we find out later she didn't. No big points for not killing her, but it's, it's a great way to ratchet up that tension where we can imagine what Faith did. As Faith walks out of the hospital, we get a voiceover from Buffy saying, you know, I never stopped thinking about you. The scene fades to Riley and Buffy. She was talking to him. 
He says he kept thinking about her too. It meant a lot to him knowing she was out there. He looks out her dorm room window, worried that they are being watched. Buffy asks if she can help him. He says all his life he's taken orders. He doesn't know what else to do. And Buffy tells him she knows how he feels and explains that Giles used to be part of this council that gave her orders all the time. And Riley says, ever obey them? And Buffy answers, sure, the ones I was going to do anyway. The point is, I quit the council, and I was scared, but it's okay now. Riley responds, see, that's where you and I are different. I just suck at the whole gray area thing. Riley's very self-aware here, and Buffy's dialogue highlights the differences between them. Because even before she met Faith, who encouraged her to kind of go her own way, and the later events made her quit the council, even before that, Buffy was steadfast in wanting to keep her life her own. She didn't follow every order. And it's so interesting that Riley and Buffy have this conversation in an episode where Faith reappears. Buffy tells Riley that he has a choice. He can go back to the initiative and try to change it from the inside or leave and fight demons his own way. And Riley says, I'm a soldier. Take that away and what's left. And Buffy says, a good man. She kisses him, then sits on his lap facing him, runs her hand through his hair as they kiss some more. He asks what she's doing and she admits to, quote, looking for brainwashy chips in your head. Close quote. But she also tells him he's been strong long enough. She'll help him. They'll find this demon and kill it together. We cut back to the bleak hospital room. There's a guy in a white coat who can't understand how Faith could not be there. And he says, coma patients do not just get up and walk away. A nurse in a white uniform and white sweater says she checks every night at 8, and this time the bed was just empty. And a detective who's there can't believe there was no security when they knew this patient was wanted for questioning in multiple homicides. Great conflict, and we get out exposition about Faith and the homicides. The guy in the white coat says, you don't understand. There's no way that girl was going to wake up. This can't be happening. More hospital staff appear. They've been searching the facility. They found a young woman, unconscious, badly beaten, and stripped. After everyone disperses, the nurse dials a wall phone and says, it's happened. Send the team. If you find the plot turns and the story structure overall that I talk about in this podcast helpful and you may want to use it with your own story or novel, you can find free story structure worksheets at writingasasecondcareer.com slash story and download those. Or you can check out my audiobooks, Super Simple Story Structure, or The One-Year Novelist, a week-by-week guide to writing your novel in one year, both by L.M. Lilly, L-I-L-L-Y. You can get those wherever you buy audiobooks. There are also links in the show notes and at lisalilly.com and writingasasecondcareer.com, or you can ask your local librarian to order those audiobooks for you. Both books also are available in ebook and workbook formats. At 17 minutes 54 seconds in, Faith stands across the street from the burned out Sunnydale High building, staring at it. We then see her slowly walking in the middle of a Sunnydale downtown street, her hands in the pockets of that red sweater. Everyone else who crosses her path seems to be in groups. They all look like couples or families. Only Faith is alone. And Doug Petrie also talked about that, that in the town scenes, they had to pack in a lot of emotion without any dialogue because Faith is by herself and that they purposely included a father and daughter to emphasize Faith's isolation. Around 19 minutes in, Faith creeps down the stairs into the courtyard of Giles' apartment. She listens from outside and sometimes peers through the window as the gang talks inside about Adam. There have been no sightings in a while. Riley says Adam needs a power source. He's probably charging up somewhere. 
Buffy puts an arm around Riley and kisses him. The group speculates about whether Professor Walsh left notes about Adam and how they could get into the initiative. Riley offers to go back in to share information with them. He says it's the least he can do. Faith watches all of this, especially focused on Buffy and Riley. This is such a good way to keep the tension strong while the gang is giving the viewers a little more background about Adam and catching us up and showing us Riley's plans to go back into the initiative. If it weren't for Faith watching, that scene to me would feel a lot like some in the last episode where our characters are just handing information back and forth. This is a great way to put in exposition if you need to have something else going on that creates tension. And here it is what Faith will do, whether the group will notice her. Doug Petrie commented on the fact that there is a fire in Giles' fireplace. And he said it's really hard to have a fire on a television set because there are all these safety issues and you need to have a fire marshal there at all times. But he really wanted this because this shows Giles is Buffy's dad. Buffy is at home where it's safe and warm. She's with her family. And Faith is spying on her, looking from the outside in at everything she doesn't have and Buffy does. And all of this fuels Faith's rage. And Petrie said he's been told he is too sympathetic to Faith and that he sometimes has to be reminded that Faith is psychotic. I think that makes him the perfect choice to write this story. As the viewers, we're not on her side, but it's so valuable to see how she sees things. It makes it such a more interesting and heartbreaking story. Faith isn't just a bad guy. At 20 minutes, two seconds in, the phone rings. It's for Buffy. So we're nearing the midpoint of the episode. And the midpoint is where we usually see the protagonist make a major commitment or suffer a major reversal. This same moment in the two-part story serves as the first major plot turn. That's that turn that spins the story in a new direction and comes from outside the protagonist and raises the stakes. So let's start with the midpoint reversal. This is one for Buffy because now that Riley is safe, she's ready to put all her energy into stopping Adam. And instead, she's about to find out that Faith has awakened from the coma and escaped. So that's a major reversal. It puts Buffy and everyone in danger. And it spins the story because she can't concentrate on Adam or the initiative or Riley. She's got to find and deal with Faith, which raises the stakes for Faith as well, because now she can't simply lurk in the shadows. We hear Buffy's part of the conversation, something about an emergency, and Faith outside slips away. At 20 minutes, 50 seconds in, Buffy hangs up and says, it's Faith, she's awake. Xander and Willow exchange worried looks as Buffy tells them Faith beat a woman up and no one knows where she is. Xander says, I'd say this qualifies for a worst timing ever award. Giles says they have to find her. Willow says, what about Adam? And Xander comments, I'd hate to see the pursuit of a homicidal lunatic get in the way of pursuing a homicidal lunatic. Buffy says Faith isn't low-profile girl. Buffy will patrol and wait for Faith to make a move. They debate what to do once they find her. The police wouldn't know what to do with the Slayer. And as to the council, Xander says, been there, done that, not unlike smothering a forest fire with napalm, as I recall. A nice reminder through conflict of season three, when Angel was starting to get through to Faith, but the council came, took her into custody, and and then let her escape, causing her to spiral further into darkness. It also foreshadows some of the second part of this episode. Buffy says there's no way around it. Faith is her responsibility. And Willow says, yeah, too bad. That was the funnest coma ever. And Buffy goes on. She has no idea what Faith is thinking. And Xander says who she's doing. 
this and a later comment Xander will make suggests to me the writers never saw Faith's assault of Xander when she tried to strangle him as a sexual assault or any type of assault that truly traumatized Xander. It suggests what lingers for him is having sex with her for the first time and the jealousy he feels of her being with anyone else. Certainly he could have complicated feelings. He could feel both ways about that, but we haven't gotten any evidence from him about Faith nearly killing him or sexually assaulting him. Buffy goes on that Faith could be terrified or maybe she doesn't remember what happened or she does and she's sorry and is alone and hiding somewhere. And Petrie commented that Buffy doesn't know how to respond to Faith because she feels responsible and she is responsible for Faith's coma. She stabbed Faith and Faith jumped off the building to get away from her. And this is where Petrie also spoke to the idea of sibling rivalry between the two slayers and that who is the older sister and who's the younger shifts around. Sometimes Faith seems like the older sister because she's more worldly, she's very strong, and she's the villain. But other times it feels like Buffy is the older sibling because she is more centered, more mature, and more together. Giles muses that maybe there's some rehabilitation they haven't thought of. Willow suggests kicking ass as a backup. And Buffy says they need to find Faith first. At 22 minutes, 31 seconds in, and for the first time in forever, we cut to Riley, who says, who's Faith? So now we know Buffy never told him this part of her Slayer history. Rather than anyone answering Riley, we cut to Willow and Buffy. And I feel like that's a really interesting choice because if we just had Buffy talking to Riley, she would be telling him things we already know. And while there'd be some tension because we'd know what she's leaving out, we wouldn't really get to get Buffy telling us her feelings about that. By cutting past the Riley-Buffy conversation to Willow and Buffy and Willow asking Buffy, well, what did you tell him? We get a really interesting perspective because Buffy says the truth that she's my wacky identical cousin from England and whenever she visits, hijinks ensue. Willow comments, it's good you guys have such an honest relationship. Buffy clarifies that she did tell him about Faith. She vagued up some bits, but no outright lies, including she didn't tell him about Angel because it's a long conversation and she needs to focus on finding Faith. And I think maybe that's true. That is a long conversation that could be quite a distraction. And at the same time, I'm pretty sure it's also because Riley made that comment about not being good at gray areas. The reason it will be such a long conversation isn't just that Buffy has a lot to tell and it's complicated, but that Riley may have some trouble understanding all of it, and Buffy knows that. Willow asks if Buffy had any luck finding Faith. Buffy says no sign of her, and she's not sure where that falls in the luck department. Willow comments that every cop in Sunnydale must be looking for Faith. Buffy agrees, the pressure's on, and says, I tell you, if I were her, I'd get out of Dodge post-hasty. Though it's not obvious until this moment, Faith was standing with a group of students with her back to Buffy, and now she turns and says, you're not me, and we cut to a commercial. When we come back, Buffy says she's been looking for Faith, and Faith says, I've been standing still for eight months, B. How hard you look? And Buffy says, are you all right? Faith responds, five by five. That's the thing about a coma. You wake up all rested and rejuvenated and ready for payback. Buffy tells her it doesn't need to be that way, but Faith tells her it does. After all, Buffy tried to gut her. Buffy says Faith would have done the same to her given the chance. Faith is clearly ready to fight. Buffy looks around and says, Faith, these are innocent people. Faith says, no such animal. And she goes on to say, Buffy is still the same better than thou, Buffy. And then she says she had this dream while she was in the coma, that Buffy tried to kill her over a guy. But in the time that Faith was knocked out, Buffy's moved on to the first college beef stick she met. And she's forgotten not only the love of her life, but the chick she nearly killed him for. She asks Buffy what it 
it means. And Buffy responds to me, mostly, that you still mouth off about things you don't understand. Doug Petrie said the original response that he wrote when Faith asks that question, what do you think it means, Buffy punches her and says, well, you know what Sigmund Freud said, though I'm just translating. But Joss told uh, Doug Petrie that it was too aggressive to punch a girl who had just been in a coma for eight months. And I agree with that. So they changed the script so that Faith throws the first punch when sirens sound in the distance. There's also this nice moment while Buffy and Faith are sparring verbally that Willow tries to inch over behind Faith and hit her with her backpack. But before Willow can do more than just inch over, Faith says something like, uh, try it red and die. Faith knows she's doing it. Petrie said that it's always good to have a moment when you can demonstrate that slayers have superpowers and that's a great way to do that. After that first punch, Buffy and Faith fight until a police car pulls up. Now Willow does get in a whack at Faith's back with her backpack. Faith threatens Buffy and runs. Faith goes over a stone wall, and by the time Buffy reaches it, she doesn't see Faith anywhere. At 26 minutes in, we cut to Willow and Tara walking through the student lounge area, keeping an eye out for Faith, who Willow describes as psychopathic super bitch. Tara's nervous, but Willow reassures her it's strictly recon, making Tara laugh a little, impressed that Willow is this cool monster fighter. Willow tells her Faith's technically not a monster and describes her as this cleavagey slut bomb walking around going, ooh, check me out, I'm wicked cool, I'm 5 by 5 Tara asks what 5 by 5 means, and Willow says nobody knows, it's just something Faith says. And I thought this was such a great way to flag Faith's 5 Five by five phrase so that the audience catches the significance at the end of the episode. I don't love this slut shaming of Faith, and we'll get more of it later. It is a reflection of the times. I like to think that now, if the show were written, that wouldn't be one of Willow's criticisms of Faith. We then cut to Xander and Giles. They are walking through the Sunnydale streets at night. Xander is telling Giles that he could be the target here because Faith has a lot of pent-up feelings for Xander. And he goes on, I can't be responsible for the effect I have on women. Giles rolls his eyes. They hear something in an alley. Xander fires up the blaster. They round the corner, but just find Spike. They tell him they're looking for a rogue slayer, a real psycho killer, and Spike says, sounds serious. Giles says, it is. What do you know? Spike responds, what do you need? Xander describes Faith, including her name, her height, her hair color, and that she's criminally insane. And Spike asks if she's after them. And when they admit that she is, Spike says, tell you what I'll do then. I'll head out, find this girl, tell her exactly where all of you are, and watch while she kills you. Xander and Giles look shocked and Spike, exasperated, reminds them that he hates all of them and goes on, just because I can't do the damage myself doesn't stop me from aiming a loose cannon your way. He starts walking off and goes on, and here I thought the evening would be dull. Xander calls after him that Spike doesn't even know what this slayer looks like, but Spike turns around and repeats Xander's description word for word and finishes, criminally insane, I like this girl already. Xander turns to Giles and says, we're dumb. So what's really interesting to me is Doug Petrie said that both this scene and the Willow and Tara scene, both of those were added after the whole episode was shot because they came up, um, I think he said about nine minutes short. So Joss Whedon suggested, well, the friends should be out looking for Faith. I love that because these are two of my favorite scenes. And also there I was admiring so much this subtlety of working in the five by five comment, a way to highlight that. And I, I would have sworn that was purposeful. And here they were filling in some space. So it just shows what you can do sometimes. Often the idea of, oh, I've got to add some scenes to make it longer is a recipe for boring scenes or what stand out as filler scenes. And here... I think these scenes are just fantastic. We cut back to the nurse from the hospital. She watches a helicopter land on the roof of the facility and three men in black get out. Now at 30 minutes, six seconds in, we're back to downtown Sunnydale, this time following Faith. A deep voice calls out to her. It's a demon who says a friend sent him. He has a little remembrance for her. 
Faith doesn't bother to ask questions. She kills him and takes the envelope in his hand. She breaks into a store and pops a video cassette from the envelope into a player. We're now at the three-quarter point in this episode, or we're nearing it, and that is where we usually see another major plot turn that grows from that midpoint and spins the story in yet another new direction. So we definitely have this for this episode, Although it it isn't exactly from the midpoint of Buffy finding out about Faith, but it is clearly from Faith being out in the world trying to evade Buffy, this demon comes after her. It does take the story in an entirely new direction. We see the mayor on the screen as Faith watches. He taped himself in his office while Faith was in the coma. And he says if she is watching, it only means one thing. He is dead and their noble campaign to bring order to Sunnydale failed. Though he jokes that maybe he's in a museum and kids are sitting there watching and he waves to them. But he turns serious again, says he believes she will wake up but she'll find the world has gone and changed and he wishes he could make a better world for her to wake up in but he goes on we both have to understand that even my power to protect and watch over you has its limits see the hard pill to swallow here is that once i'm gone your days are just plain numbered now i know you're a smart capable young woman in charge of her own life But the problem, Faith, is that um, there won't be a place for you in the world. Right now, I bet you're feeling very much alone. But you're never alone. You'll always have me, and you'll always have this. And he holds up a box and tells her, go ahead, open it. So there is a box in her envelope. And he says, just because it's over for my Faith doesn't mean she can't go out with a bang. Today we have some listener comments, starting with Stella Donna on YouTube about Wild at Heart, responding to some of my comments about Veruca's character. Stella Donna says, hmm, there's also the conceit throughout the show of the demon within Buffy and how she deals with it. So I don't think the male-female dichotomy between Veruca and Oz is unforgivable. However, in retrospect, I do agree that Veruca should have been more dimensional, especially since she was teased for a couple of episodes leading up to this. And Stella Donna also commented on season four. When I was a kid, some of these episodes were definitely clunky compared to the brilliant season two and three, obviously because the show was trying to find a new vibe. But now when I go back and watch random one-off episodes, they're often from this season. I thought these were great points, especially about Veruca being teased in a couple episodes. As to the second part about watching more one-off episodes from season four, I realized this episode today, This Year's Girl, is absolutely one of my favorites, as is Who Are You? And Superstar, which comes after it, I really enjoy. And those are all pretty self-contained episodes. In a lot of ways, you could take them out of the season and it wouldn't do too much and yet they are some of my favorite Buffy episodes ever. Raven Dark author also has some comments on the I in team. Here are some of the highlights. First, I see what you mean about there seeming to be no clear story spark for the Buffy Walsh plot, but I think maybe it's Buffy neutralizing Walsh's guys so quickly was what set off the spark of concern in her that Buffy is a threat. I know the episode seems to focus on Walsh seeing Buffy's asking so many questions as the issue, but what if it's more than that? What if she also doesn't like that Buffy might be a superior fighter to them? On reflection, I think that is right. I do think that's the spark or inciting incident. Raven Dark also talks about my comment about Spike not caring that Giles is still there in his crypt talking to him about how he might have a greater purpose and says, I actually think Spike wants to be part of the gang on a deep down level, but that need butts up against his own selfish need to get rid of his chip, to be a normal vampire, to feed off humans, and to just generally protect himself. I think he just hides it because he doesn't want to admit that kind 
kind of vulnerability to the Scoobies. And Ravendark goes on to say that we see a hint of that in Doomed because Spike discovered he could hurt demons and went to Willow and Xander to team up with them, which of course he didn't have to do. And I I agree on all of that. I think Spike does want to be part of the group. And after reading this comment, I was thinking about how Spike... We always saw him with other vampires, uh, with Drusilla from the beginning, in flashbacks, with the foursome of Drusilla, Spike, Angel, and Darla. In the warehouse, he and Drew had other vamps with them. And I do think he also has become fond of the Scoobies, whatever else he says. Also, something just hit me right now, that comment about Spike wanting to be a normal vampire. Perhaps there's something there with him identifying, though neither of them recognizes it, with Buffy. Buffy wants to be a normal girl, but because of being the slayer, she can't. And Spike wants to be a normal vampire, but because of the chip, he can't. Ravendark also commented on that line from Willow to Tara that I wasn't sure Willow would really say. Ravendark author says, I believe that when Willow gives the awkward excuse that Tara might feel out of place on an outing with her friends, she's reacting out of fear that her friends will find out she has feelings for Tara, or perhaps that she's aware there's some emotions for Tara she hasn't figured out, and putting Tara and her friends together in the same room might cause her to have to confess front feelings that have repercussions she isn't ready to face. Willow's excluding Tara isn't nice, but we have to consider the climate of the times in which this episode aired. It was still a time when gay individuals had to be very careful about coming out, and being in same-sex relationships often still had horrible consequences. This is such a great point, and I really should have seen this and didn't. So thank you, Raven Dark Author, for pointing that out. If you would like to comment on the show, you can do so at lisalily.com slash Buffy Story by adding a comment under the post with each episode or on YouTube under the episodes or on the Facebook Buffy in the Art of Story group or tweet me at Lisa M. Lily, hashtag Buffy Story. Petrie commented on the bond between the mayor and Faith being one of yearning and also said the mayor is interesting because he's not benign. On the one hand, you know, he's wanting to care for Faith, but he doesn't give her a gift that is like a dowry or is something positive and helpful. He gives her a weapon. I also thought watching this how the mayor is this mix of a great dad, but also this abusive control person. He genuinely seems to love Faith. He wishes he could be there for her to make the world better for her in the way parents, good parents feel for their children. But yet he is telling her, without me, you're all alone. You, you can't make it without me. Which is so sad. It's so isolating. And he has always done both of those things with Faith. That moment of introducing that weapon, though we don't yet know what it does is what really spins things. At 34 minutes, 8 seconds in, we switch to Buffy telling Riley she's a very dangerous woman. Riley chuckles, clearly not taking her seriously, and says, okay, I get it, really. Faith bad. Do I look like I'm arguing? And Buffy says not yet, but he tells her he really does want to help her fight. Buffy says he can't help and to demonstrate throws him a nerf ball and it hurts him terribly to catch it. Riley still wants to do more than wait around for Buffy to pummel this gal. She points out that the fact that he just called Faith a gal shows he's not taking her seriously. But Riley doesn't focus on that. Instead, he says he's never seen anyone get under Buffy's skin that way and wants to know exactly what Faith did to her. Buffy tells him it's a long story. He responds he's from Iowa where they drive four hours for a football game and he's still grinning as he says she can tell him. Buffy says she already told him Faith hurt Buffy and hurt her friends and she's a psycho killer. I want to have some sympathy for Riley here because he's not wrong. There are things Buffy's not telling him. Those things 
this may be part of the intensity of her feelings. And if he didn't keep grinning about it, I, I think I would have sympathy if he were taking her seriously and then saying, but there's something you're not telling me. But instead, he treats it all as a joke. Now, I will say it may irk me more than it does other people because I have this feeling of identification with Buffy in this moment. For years, I lived with someone he came from an Italian family. They were very expressive. Like he, he would joke about that. We all talk with our hands. We're very upfront with their emotions. And I loved that. And it was so different from my family. But that isn't how I express myself. And it would cause problems because I would say something that felt to me like I was being very clear. And he would not get that I was upset. I remember one time he was joking around. We were putting away groceries. And he got this idea it would be funny to start tossing eggs to me to catch and put in the refrigerator. But he was tossing them too fast. And I kept saying, stop stop. One or two was funny, but stop. And he wouldn't stop. And finally, I just screamed at him to stop. And he was so shocked. And was like, well, you could have just told me to stop. And I, and I was like, I, I did. I said that three or four times. But because I was just saying, stop, stop. And I wasn't yelling and waving my arms. He wasn't getting it. So over identification with Buffy in that moment where she is trying so hard to get Riley to take her seriously. And he just thinks it's a big joke. And she now says, Riley, this isn't a joke. There's a criminally insane woman out there with superpowers who thinks I'm responsible for ruining her life. I know Faith. She'll come after me and she'll come after the people that I love. And we cut at 35 minutes, 40 seconds in to a knock on the summer's door. Joyce opens, Faith is there and says, hi, Joyce, and punches Joyce. And we cut to a commercial. We see Faith bring her arm back and swing. We hear the impact, but we do not see Joyce get punched. And Doug Petrie said that's because he likes Joyce and he didn't want to show her getting punched in the face. But he said it ended up being a stronger moment because of that, because we don't see it, much like that fight in the open grave, which he said became scarier and more powerful because we didn't see it. When we return from the commercial, Faith is going through Joyce's lipsticks, she finds one called Harlot and puts it on, saying, way to go, Joyce. Joyce sits on the bed. Her hands are held together on her knees. Faith tells Joyce to be honest and asks how she looks with the lipstick, and Joyce says, psychotic. Faith responds, hmm, I was shooting for sultry, but hey. She goes on and says she knows what Joyce is thinking, that Faith will never get away with this. And Joyce says, no, she's thinking her daughter is going to kill Faith soon. And Faith says, that a fact. And Joyce says, more like a bet. Faith compliments Joyce. She's got a pair on her, and Faith likes that in a woman Joyce's age. But she found all these letters for Buffy, and she runs through them all, unopened, and says, Buffy hasn't been here in a while. And you'd think that Buffy would have given Joyce a heads up when there's a killer on the loose. Petrie made a really interesting comment I had not thought about here, which is, that Faith has to kidnap Buffy's mom in order to have a mom. She is like a little girl playing with her mother's lipstick, except that she is keeping Joyce there by threat of force. Also that Buffy has forgotten her mom to a great degree this year, and Faith sees that. She sees the signs. And that what she is really saying to Joyce is, if I had a mom like you, I would not forget you. But she is psychopathic, so she's going to turn on a dime against Joyce. Joyce now says Faith doesn't know the first thing about her and Buffy. And Faith says, don't I? I know what it's like. You think you matter. You think you're part of something and you get dumped. It's like the whole world is moving, but you're stuck. It's like those animals in the tar pits. It's like you just keep sinking a little deeper every day and nobody even sees. And Faith continues, sooner or later, you're going to have to face it. She was over us a long time ago, Joyce, too busy climbing on her new boy toy to give a single thought to the people that matter. I mean, you're her mother. Her tone is escalating. Faith turns to the dresser and grabs a giant knife. 
spins around toward Joyce and says, and she just leaves you here to die. Buffy bursts through the window, breaking the glass, lands on Faith and punches her. Buffy stands and says, hi, mom. And Joyce says, hi, honey. We're about 38 minutes, 41 seconds in. And this is the beginning of the climax for this episode. This is where our protagonist and antagonist have their final confrontation and resolve the conflict. As they fight, Joyce calls the police. It is a great fight scene. They move into the upstairs hallway. They roll down the stairs. They fight, I think, in almost every room of the house. And Faith says, thought I'd go after the clean Marine, didn't you? He's a cutie. Looks like he could use a good role in the sack. And Buffy says, you're not his type. He's not big on sleaze. Faith says, he's probably just never tried it. Buffy responds, going after the boyfriend again? That's tired. This is all as they are trading blows. At 39 minutes, 50 seconds in, we cut to Giles. He walks into his apartment, flips the light switch, but it stays dark until someone else turns on a lamp. It's those three goons in dark clothes from the helicopter, and one of them says, Hello, Rupert. We go back to Buffy and Faith fighting. Sirens sound outside and Faith runs for the living room. Before that, we have this great use of space and objects. Faith opened one of the French doors and slammed it into Buffy. One of them threw the other on the large coffee table and smashed it to pieces. Red lights start flashing from outside. Faith gets to the mantle, puts on a metal device over her hand so it's palm out, turns and catches Buffy's hand so that their palms are pressed together. A light flashes. They both look startled and look at one another. Faith looks especially puzzled. At 40 minutes, 51 seconds in, Buffy slugs Faith hard enough to knock her out, and Faith lands on that smashed-up coffee table. This looks like the end of the final confrontation, and Buffy won the fight. And Doug Petrie commented that Faith was very strategic here. She let herself get beaten up to the point where she was exhausted and so close to unconsciousness. Now we are at the falling action. This is the part of a story where the writer ties up the loose ends and resolves subplots. Joyce rushes in, asks Buffy if she's okay. Buffy is staring down at her hand and says, all things considered. Joyce asks what that thing is, and Buffy says, weapon of some kind. She throws it down, stamps on it, and a light flashes through the room, and she goes on, didn't work, whatever it is. There's a banging at the door, it's the police, and Buffy looks down at Faith and says she's their problem now. Joyce asks Buffy if she's sure she's okay. Buffy smiles and says, five by five. There's ominous music and a tilted camera angle as she looks down at Faith and to be continued flashes on the screen. So this was the falling action which tells us it is Faith now in Buffy's body so that it was Faith that won that fight. This is also the midpoint reversal or commitment for the two-part episode. It is a literal major reversal for Buffy. She has now been put into Faith's body and Faith is in hers. And it's a major commitment for Faith for the same reason. She has traded away her own body, her own life, and has become, for however long it will last, Buffy. This is also a great example of a game changer. In one sense, it's a cliffhanger in that we leave this dangling out there. It's something, of course, we want to come back and see what happens. But the reason I think of it as a game changer rather than a cliffhanger is because our main story did resolve the Buffy and Faith conflict within this episode of Faith waking up, pursuing Buffy, Buffy and Faith having their confrontation did resolve and Faith won this round. Then we realized something happened that changed the entire world. That's a game changer. And when we go to the next episode, we will be dealing with that new world. So one last question is, who is the protagonist? Is it Faith or is it Buffy? The protagonist should have a goal they're actively pursuing, should be the main point of view character, and have the most at stake. 
Here, Faith is actively pursuing a goal throughout. The goal shifts a little, but it is very consistent. Uh, first, she wakes up. It's to acclimate to this new world. But she has been thinking of Buffy the whole time. Her goal is to make Buffy pay, and the mayor gives her another way to do that. So very consistent, very active throughout. Buffy does have active goals. Her initial one is a joint goal to defeat Adam, to protect people from Adam, and to help Riley. And then once Riley is safe, she still wants to help him deal with the fallout, but she's ready to shift to Adam and then she finds out about Faith. Her goal shifts to figuring out how to deal with Faith. We get almost as much from Faith's point of view as Buffy's, perhaps even more, unless we consider all the scenes from the Scooby gang's perspective to be part of Buffy's point of view. Then I think maybe we weigh a little more on Buffy. Finally, the stakes are high for both of them. Faith's life is at stake throughout. In the beginning, she is wanted and hunted, and definitely her life is at stake. Buffy tried to kill her before. We have these goons in black who are called in. But Buffy also has high stakes. Her biggest mission in life is to protect people. And Adam is a huge threat and one she has no idea how to deal with. We then double down on that with another huge threat she has no idea how to deal with, which is Faith. And certainly her life is at stake too. Either Adam or Faith could kill her. Usually a question over who is the protagonist undermines an episode. We saw that in the first season in Teacher's Pet where it wasn't quite clear was Buffy the protagonist, was Xander the protagonist. This episode is so fascinating to me because I really think you could make an argument for either Buffy or Faith, but that makes the episode even more powerful. And I think it works because the two are so intertwined. It is the same plot. These two two very powerful young women opposing one another. If we are in Faith's head, she is the protagonist and Buffy is the villain and vice versa. A couple other things from Doug Petrie's DVD commentary. He mentioned the initiative as being very Star Trek-like because there's a line Riley has when he's confronting that soldier outside her room and he says, stand down before I put you down. And I think that does tell us something about how the writers saw the initiative. He also commented about those three guys that what's fun about writing for Buffy is that the universe expands all the time. And these three guys are an example of that. Hopefully not too much of a spoiler to say we'll find out they are from the Watcher's Council, but these three guys seem to be the particularly dark side of it that maybe the show itself didn't know existed until they were necessary in this episode. So he enjoys the way that the world evolves. So that is it for this episode, other than spoilers and foreshadowing, which I hope you will stick around for. Thank you so much for listening, and a special thank you to patrons who support the show and who get access to bonus content. So if you haven't had enough of my voice and my thoughts about Buffy, you can become a patron and get more of that. I hope you will all come back in two weeks for Who Are You, where we see the consequences of Faith using that weapon the mayor gave her. And we are back for foreshadowing and spoilers. In Faith's dream, when Buffy is apologetic, saying she has to go, Faith mentions little sis coming. Clear spoiler about Dawn's arrival in season five. Riley's line, I'm a soldier, take that away, and what's left is something that he is going to struggle with throughout season five until he leaves, and it will be a big driver of a lot of his conflicts. There are some foreshadowings for the season four arc. The brainwashy chips in Riley's head, Buffy doesn't find any, but this foreshadows, of course, that Riley does have a chip. It's just not in his head. 
this Buffy Riley interaction where he will not take her seriously and keeps grinning and chuckling. Maybe this is part of why later on Buffy blames Riley for not realizing it is faith in her body. I mentioned last episode that Riley asks Buffy, who are you, when it is Buffy, and then he doesn't ask Buffy that when it's not Buffy. And here, Buffy is trying so hard to get him to take the threat of faith seriously, and he just doesn't. And though I don't believe we ever get her saying that or get any textual evidence of it, on some level, that has got to really get to her. I warned you about Faith, how dangerous she was, how she would come after everyone I loved. And you didn't see, not just that it wasn't me, you weren't on high alert. And I tried to tell you. As far as foreshadowings for the next episode, Who Are You? That line of Riley's about not being good at gray areas does prepare us for Riley not questioning when Buffy comes to his room and she really isn't acting like herself. And he he recognizes that in a way, but it never crosses his mind that it's not Buffy. He sees Buffy. She looks like Buffy. She has Buffy's voice. Riley's not good at the gray areas, and it doesn't occur to him that something supernatural could be going on, despite that he does know about demons. He does know about magic, but it never crosses his mind. He's not good at gray areas. Xander's comment about the council, been there, done that, not unlike smothering a forest fire with napalm. And that is exactly what the council does. They come in they make everything worse as I mentioned, I don't love the slut-shaming of Faith. It does, in a way, build toward that scene where Faith, in Buffy's body, comes on to Spike and taunts him. And I wonder if that is part of why we have these allusions to Faith's sexuality, also preparing the way for her to go after Riley, which is so strongly foreshadowed. And I cannot believe I never, ever noticed this before when Faith says, thought I'd go after the clean marine didn't you he's a cutie looks like he could use a good role in the sack i never noticed that she said that and that is what she does i think some of it is because in who are you that doesn't seem to be something faith is intent on she doesn't appear to even think about going to see riley until i'm pretty sure it's willow who mentions something about are you gonna go see riley and faith is like oh that's a good idea so that is it for spoilers and foreshadowing thank you again for listening and i hope you will come back in two weeks for who are you the faith buffy body switch episode one of my all-time favorite buffy episodes ever remember you can find back episodes of buffy and the art of story at lisalily.com slash buffy story that's l-i-s-a-l-i-l-l-y dot com slash buffy story also if you like supernatural thrillers or private investigator novels with smart strong female protagonists you can try the first in each of my series free at lisalily.com slash free music for this episode was written and performed by robert newcastle Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 20.